This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. Good morning, Sam. How's it going today? It's going very well. Not a frost, but a nice, just enough cloud to keep the frost away, but still a stunning day. Well, that's a good thing. Well, we got this... Absolutely amazing frost. I got up this morning. It looked like it had snowed. It's so pretty out there. Didn't you tell me that that never happens there? <laughs> it really happens, but it's so exciting <laughs> when it does. And who are you introducing today? Today I'm introducing um, someone who I think makes a, an, a really substantial community contribution here in the Bay of Plenty, Alistair Rhodes, who is CEO of Bay Trust. Uh, and he um, has got a really unique point of view. Um, he gone through the process of granting through COVID um, and uh, supporting heaps of different community organisations that were trying to make a positive difference. So it's a real pleasure to introduce you today, Alistair. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Moera. It's uh, great to be here. Welcome. So how was bubble life for you? I know that's looking back a bit now. Yeah, it's a while ago now, isn't it? It's, um, I mean, it started off, it was just, uh, we were quite fortunate because we'd already been moving to kind of work from home a little bit. So most of my, myself and the staff were already set up with a bit of a home kind of office environment. It wasn't actually perfect, um, but we were actually reasonably well set up and so we could kind of transition to working from home pretty reasonably. And I think for us, we kept quite busy over that kind of lockdown period. So we kept on having to monitor and make a whole bunch of investment decisions before our investments. But also from a community perspective, we continue to operate all our granting, our business as usual granting, plus introduce new COVID recover or response, you know, rapid response kind of grants across the community as well. So actually I think from a mental perspective, it actually really helped the staff that actually we had a lot of stuff on over the period as well. And then, you know, very fortunate that myself and the staff live in a fantastic part of the, um, the country, New Zealand, in the sunny Bay of Plenty. We had some amazing weather. A lot of the staff have got children. So, you know, we're off, you know, people who managed to kind of walk down the beach, really connect with the children. And, you know, one of the things I really liked was actually having the no traffic around. So we could kind of bike down the, you know, bike down the road to the local kind of dairy. There was no traffic. There was no pollution. You saw all these families walking around a lot more than you ever have in the past. And you know, it's things like that. I think, you know, we want to see if we can somehow kind of encourage that to continue going forward. It was a strange thing that we enjoyed that part of the, the lockdown so much. And everybody yeah. was saying, why can't we carry on with this? And then, as soon as we, as soon as we were allowed, we all went back to rushing around and driving our cars about. Yeah, I, I remember. I was always sceptical. I don't know if you recall. You we used to have carless days back in you know the seventies with petrol price crisis, and I was like, that must be the stupidest idea, idea ever. And you couldn't shop on Sundays, etc. And then after the lockdown, I was like, actually, this is actually quite enjoyable, <laughs> quite peaceful, having nothing to do on Sunday. Um, so it's good. I mean, I was fortunate as well. My two children are age 10 and 13, which are pretty easy ages to manage. I, you know, I've got friends that had a lot younger kids that it was a lot more full on for them, especially when they tried to do their online learning at school again. So my kids were pretty easy to self-manage and occupy themselves as well. So that kind of worked reasonably well as well. And then the other thing with me is, um, you know, my wife and I broke up a few years ago. So we have shared custody of the kids. So Again, that worked quite well. I'd have them for three days. She'd have them for three days. So that meant the kids just weren't in my house the whole time as well. So I had some space. Let's take the exponents with 
Why Does Love Do This To Me? I walked out, you left me You know I'm hurting for you It seems now that it's over But there is nothing I can do does the Bay Trust do? Um, so, yeah, we were set up about 30 years ago as um, Trust Bank, which was a community-owned savings bank, was effectively sold to Westpac. And those funds, instead of kind of going into kind of government coffers or distributed to the community, were put into a perpetual trust uh, to effectively benefit the Bay of Plenty. So the funds have grown in size from $90 million to around $220 million. Now, trustee effectively just says we're there to benefit the Bay of Plenty. So we work for our trustees, our staff and our community to interpret that, interpret that. But we grant into a range of things from environmental initiatives to yeah, helping out groups like Age Concern to supporting surf lifesaving clubs. So kind of a quite a broad based granter. But ultimately, what we're there is, as like most trusts, is to make a difference. So what we're trying to do with our grant funding is, you know, make a difference across a range of different outcome areas across our community. Um, and, you know, we've got, like, we're quite fortunate in New Zealand. There's another 12 similar trusts. We're called the Community Trust kind of family. Um, very different. There's no no similar kind of model overseas. We've got our own piece of legislation. We're not a charity, but we kind of effectively act and operate a bit like a char- charitable kind of entity. Um, so quite a unique position in New Zealand. Um, and I think, you know, it actually really works well. So what we try and do is kind of find some of those gaps in funding. So, now, we don't want to fund things that the central or local government would be funding. We're trying to look for some of those kind of gaps in funding to you know, complement some of you know, what the rest of the community and the central and local government are doing at the same time as well. 
So does yeah. that making a difference, is that the, the criteria that you're giving money away on? I mean, when you boil it down to, it kind of really is, because if we weren't going to make a difference, um, if our funding wasn't going to make a difference in that area, why would we actually do it? So, you know, we only grant $7 million, odd, $7 million effectively a year, which is just a drop in the bucket compared to kind of the need. So we really only uh, grant into areas where we can kind of see we're making a difference. So if the central government was going to fund that area, why would we fund with our kind of limited amount of money? So... You know, a good example would be even from an event perspective, if that event was going to go ahead without our funding, we wouldn't fund into. But if we could see our funding was going to make a difference, improve that event, make it bigger, attract more people, et cetera, then, we, then we're you know, we likely to fund into it. So that's one of the key things we have at the back of our head whenever we assess those grants is, you know, are we actually making a difference? We also realise, you know, we don't want a 1,000 applications and have to turn down 900-odd applications. So we actually... You know, spend a lot of time working through what our granting priorities are and try and make that as clear as possible to the community because it's just kind of a waste of their time if they apply for funding and we actually can't you know, can't fund them. So our goal is to have about 80% success rate. So 80% of the applications that come through are funded, so that means we have to be quite clear what our priorities for funding are. Yeah, so we have kind of four key funding areas, which is one is the environment, the environment being the you know the foundation of our community. So that's a very important priority for us. The second is around um, now healthy, secure and affordable housing. So we see across the Bay of Plenty that, you know, housing is one of our biggest issues. Whenever we survey our community, it's a lack of affordable housing, the, you know, the quality of that kind of housing and the cost of living as well. So it's how can we actually make a difference in that kind of space? Um, and when you think about how expensive housing is, that's when we start having to use our balance sheet or our investments to start investing into that area and creating, you know, new opportunities like shared equity, shared ownership kind of models, etc. Um, the other one that we actually focus on is about inclusive growth and sustainable employment. We're actually looking to kind of spread the benefits of that growth equitably across kind of the region. And lastly, it's a kind of a catch-all, which is community well-being and Tumari Mai, which is just, you know, where we help community through a range of different things. Um, it could be from, you know, events to, you know, the Alzheimer's sport groups to budgeting advice services, all those, you know, core services in the not-for-profit kind of sector that really keep our community kind of well going forward. And we see all those four areas are really connected so actually what we're doing from an environmental area has to feed into what we're doing from an employment and housing area etc at the same time so it's kind of like a circular loop which is what we look at but that's our four priority areas and then under each of those we've got a quite a specific here's the areas we grant into you know we're looking for those kind of gaps um, between central local government funding and other funding in those areas and in terms of the making a difference it's not just the area but also the You'll be looking for things that are leverage or for that somehow have a, some sort of multiplier effect that this money is going to go much oh. further? Yeah, definitely. So quite often uh, what we see is, you know, the biggest funders in the region are effectively the government agencies, the DHBs, the MSDs, etc. But quite often they're very risk adverse in terms of, you know, so we quite often see our gaps is, you know, we could fund this group that's, you know, just starting off. And if we can fund it for two or three years and they can prove they're successful, you know, they can prove that they're actually making a difference and reducing, you know, uh, criminal activity or whatever it actually is, then they can actually show that to the MSD or the corrections, et cetera, and then they can come along with their large government funding in the future. So, we, you know, what we're doing is working a lot closer with other funders and government funders to kind of go, actually, our funding can really make a difference in some of the at-risk kind of funding, whereas we kind of understand it's a bit more challenging for other organisations to do that. And while that money is investing in the community, that $7 million that you give out, there was also a suggestion there that you're, being um, targeted in how you do your investments of your the the capital sum the are you able to invest that yeah. with a view to how is this making a difference yeah so exactly so when we when i started in my role five years ago we didn't all our funds were effectively in a globally diversified kind of portfolio so it was in global shares equities bonds etc um, and it made us good returns, but when if you cult ultimately come back to what our trustees there says, it's there to, we're there to benefit the Bay of Plenty. 
So from, for us, it didn't seem ethical that we weren't actually trying to use all our tools in our toolbox, and investments is just another tool to use to see if we can actually make that difference we talked about earlier on into our community. So you know, we've just recently increased our allocation to 10% of our investment base, which is around $20 million, to what we call impact investments. And those investments are in the Bay of Plenty. We were looking to not just get a financial return, but to actually have that social impact, make a measurable difference as well at the same time. And those are going to be in a range of things. At the moment, we've got investments in the housing space, um, helping some of the community housing providers, but also bringing in shared equity kind of housing products. Um, they're also in that inclusive kind of growth opportunity space. So we've just recently invested down Mawera's Way in Apodaki in, with the local iwi Whakatauia in terms of muscle processing factory, which is actually going to be about you know working with the kiwi fruit industry, creating year-long jobs and opportunities and really kind of changing what's happening down in that in that part of it, part of our kind of region as well. So at the moment we've got about 10 million invested in that, in that space and we'll be looking to invest about another 10 million more over the coming period. And the good thing with those investments, we'll get our money back and then we can grow up more and then reinvest again. Whereas from a granting perspective, once you've actually given it out, you never get it back as well. So we see that impact, what we call our impact investment philosophy, just increasing more and more in the future as well. And the other thing I like about that, Samuel, is actually when we grant to an organisation, it's not really a partnership, it's an unconditional, effectively gift, but actually if you invest alongside an organisation, say, you know, an iwi, that actually creates a true long-term kind of partnership, and then we can look at working with them and actually potentially using our grant funding in to help them in different ways and make sure that investment's really successful as well. So I think, you know, for ourselves, myself, the team, and our trustees, that's probably one of our most exciting things that we're doing, and it's probably the most impactful area we can be involved in in terms of the making that difference versus our grant funding. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha nui kia koutou koutou I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really, really hope that wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, that this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, stimulating, exciting, illuminating and inspiring. And that every day you're realising more and more who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, here making things better. Thank you for being born at this time. So today has been a wonderful day of triumphs for me and I'm so grateful and with the help of many of my Orokanui Eco Sanctuary Volunteer Dream Team Supreme we were able to go and get a wonderful truck from the very very kind Handy rentals, excuse me, it's been a big day. <laughs> and then go to the very, very wonderful Ribbonwood Nursery and fill up this truck with many, many beautiful native trees that we were being lent by the amazing Wood Nursery. And then take these beautiful native trees to the amazing Meridian Mall and start to unload them and fill the space with them to create a beautiful nano forest alongside the Dunedin City Council who are going to be doing a tree giveaway and interactive habitat map building exercise so it's been a really really exciting and wonderful day and then this evening I went to Orokanui Eco Sanctuary where I'm very lucky to work and we had a big volunteer celebration and beautiful Sam beautiful Leslie came along which was really lovely I'm very lucky to have Leslie as part of my dream team the education department and we're very lucky to work with Sam and of course it was just so wonderful to see so many really different diverse beautiful people who give their time and energy to Orokanoi and it's more than 2,000 volunteer hours every month and of course we've all been apart over this lockdown level 4, level 3, level 2 and now level 1 we're all back together all back together in our favourite place in the world, Orokanui. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful, real outpouring of love and appreciation for each other and for that shared vision and that dream which unites us, that living dream of Orokanui, the protected paradise, keeping all our native species safe. 
but of course this got me thinking about volunteering itself and how of course all of us throughout our lives have been volunteering have been giving our time and energy to those we love for the causes we love for what we love for our our perceived ends and goals our shared visions that we love and we can really reframe so much of what we do in our lives as volunteering and as generous and kind giving acts of love also I'm very grateful that my work is really my life is my my whole love and being and I'm very lucky to have a job like that but even for some of us like my beautiful partner Harvey Penfold who's finding his day job somewhat unfulfilling at the moment if we can aim to reframe it as an act of love as an act of giving which of course it is and particularly now as we as a beautiful nation of Aotearoa New Zealand are recovering from the effects of this global pandemic everything we do to contribute to our ongoing survival is an act of love and so if we can reframe even those aspects of our lives that don't immediately spring to mind as what we want to give or an arena in which we are giving in fact we are we always are giving our time and energy and particularly now it's so important that we do and that we sustain ourselves in that So I hope that for all of you, with all the giving that you're doing every day, in all these different ways, you're finding ways to give back to yourself and support yourself. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You said you were active during the the lockdown. Was that business as usual, or were you responding in a particular way to, to COVID? Yeah, so we were probably busier during the lockdown than normal because we just kept on doing all our business as usual kind of granting. We had to do all our um, business as usual investing. We kept on having our meetings with our trustees. But at the same time, we knew there were some immediate needs in the community in terms of there was a lot of community groups that were operating effectively essential services. And so what we did was set up a COVID response, rapid response fund and in the Western Bay and Rotorua, we collaborated with other funders, so actually worked with other funders to create a combined single application funding pool. And then we took more of the lead in the rest of our region around Eastern Bay, Plenty and Taupo. And so that fund, usually with our funding, it could take, you know, generally takes six weeks or longer to get those funding requests approved. We were turning those around within a week. Um, and so an application came through. We had a really um, simplified application form. We had authority from a staff to kind of make the make most of the decisions, et cetera, so we could turn around a lot of those funding requests within two or three days and get that funding out the door. The interesting thing for us is we thought that the requests were going to be a lot higher than they were. What happened is that the government stepped in in a really big way over that period. So we'd get requests for funding coming in, and two days later, the group would ring us up and say, oh, can we pull that request out? We've just heard from the central government that they're actually going to be funding us uh, full-time, you know, whether it's a food bank or a woman's refuge service or something at the same time. So I think what we've seen is actually, and this is across the board, not just ourselves, those level of funding requests we're expecting were a lot less than what we saw coming through. And one of the challenges we've got at the moment is there's just so much happening in, this, in terms of the central government space it's hard to keep track of what funding is going where, not just for us, but for those community groups. Now, if you listen to the news every second day, there's a new $200 million you know, funding announcement getting, getting made into a certain sector, you know, whether it's environmental sector or budgeting support. And so it's kind of hard to stay up with you know, what's actually happening and where those funding gaps are. And we discussed this with our board last month and said, actually, you know, we're going to use this time to do a bit of thinking, but actually we're going to really need to try to spend the next couple of months understanding what's happening. And obviously we've got an election coming up and I think it's going to be an election where there's going to be a lot of uh, funding commitments into different sectors. So we need to kind of just 
understand what that kind of pitch is going to look like, you know, going forward at the same time as well. So, you know, we're kind of just playing a bit of a waiting game, still doing all our business as usual funding. But actually, before we commit large, large amounts of monies to certain sectors, we need to kind of see how things are going to play out over the next two or three months. Then where are the gaps and where we can have our most, make our most difference again? What skills do your staff have? My initial oh. thought is that they're going to be financial people, but it sounds so much more like they've got a sort of community activation role. Yeah, so I think like most philanthropic organisations, a lot of the staff were traditionally kind of focused on being grant makers, so assessing grant applications. And a lot of our value was actually our staff working closely with community groups. So quite often they'd come and talk to us and for whatever reason, we couldn't support their funding requests, but our, our grant advisors have a lot of expertise and knowledge about who else to go to. So they could be actually, we, it doesn't really fit us, but actually have you thought about applying to the gaming trusts or you know, the DIA funds or the energy trust funds as well? And also, we also do a lot of uh, capacity and capability support as well. So groups would come to us and we go, actually, we looked at their funding requests and rather than just saying no, I said, because we've got some challenges with their finances, we might provide them some support to go, actually, you know, here's a bit of governance support you need or financial support you need to get yourselves really into shape. So traditionally, that's what the skill base is of most of these philanthropic trusts like ourselves. But because, as we spoke on earlier, we're getting into the impact investment space, we're increasingly getting more investment financial kind of expertise in our team. So one of the members of my team now, Terry, you know, her sole focus is impact investment. So she's got a chartered accountancy kind of background and more of a finance speciality, but also understands the, the philanthropic sector very well as well at the same time. So it's kind of a mix now. It's like it's almost like we have a you know a bit of a mix of like people like from almost like a private equity investment kind of background, but also from a granting background. And I think that's one of the challenges in that impact investment space. You need someone almost like that has a philanthropic background and an investment background at the same time. And there's very few, if any of those people around in New Zealand. So it's just a, it's a skill set that's in, going to be in high demand, I think, for a number of trusts looking forward. Are you saying that people that know about money and care are in short supply? I think they're getting more, there's more and more of them getting out there, Samuel, but uh, previously they have been on short supply. But it's interesting, the more people, the more people you talk to about this area, um, and particularly youth, but also people getting to the end of their retirement days, um, they're really starting to focus on going, actually, it's not just about making money. And if you think about us as a trust, we're a perpetual trust. So, you know, like Iwi, we want to be here in 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years as well. So we need to have all our investments in, in terms of actually not just making us good returns, but actually looking after our environment, looking after our community at the same time. And my you know, personal belief is if we invest in that way, it's probably likely to deliver superior financial returns at the same time over the long term. So you know, we don't see ourselves taking a haircut from our returns investing in that way because actually the best and most successful organisations generally do care about the environment, generally do care about your community and people at the same time as well, if you look over a long enough time horizon. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Well, hello there, bubble folk. How's it going out there in the big bubble world? Which, um, yes, is still sort of bubbling away, isn't it? I mean, it's it hasn't quite sunk in, I think, in some ways, that here we are sort of bubbling away, doing our thing, back to normal-ish, and yet there is just so much outside of New Zealand going on that in many ways we're not experiencing at all. And it's very easy to just slide back into kind of our our normal lives. But um, I think we've got to maintain a sort of a sense that this may not be um, sustainable, what we've got going on here. Things may have to change up again. We may have to create our little bubble worlds again. So with that in mind, I think I've had some really interesting interactions with people in the last week or so because... I think some people are, are starting to sort of um, feel the repercussions of of lockdown and what, what happened for us. Uh, some people have managed to create a buffer zone and it's worked and now it's just starting to sort of unravel for some people. And this is when, you know, a little bit like after 
after the death of someone, you know, at first we gather round, we give a lot of care and support in that first week or so, we're, we're very empathetic, we're maybe checking in on the, on the people that are most affected by that death. Um, but after a couple of weeks, we, you know, if we're, not, if we're not immediately sort of affected by this death or it's very close to us, um, we tend to sort of forget about it or think, oh, that's still really sad, but it's not affecting us on a day-to-day basis. Whereas it, it usually is still deeply affecting the people that, are, that were closest to the person who died. So sometimes it's six months later that things really just start to fall apart. And um, we, we don't always uh, notice that or necessarily know that that's the time when we also have to be showing care, that that care comes in waves almost. Uh, it's needed at different times for different sort of reasons. So I think... Being aware of the fact that some people might be starting to fall apart a little bit at this point, um, that things might be changing in their world, that some of the subsidies and things that have tided people over are starting to be withdrawn and finished or ending, coming to an end. So being kind to each other, of course, is always my <laughs> my advice to, that I give out to the universe at all times. But um, But also just, this is... This is also a space where there can be some amazing things happening. So in the midst of change and disruption and maybe feeling like your world's collapsing a little bit as one thing ends, there is always this amazing flip side to that where there are some opportunities presenting. And I've talked with a few people recently, um, as I said, like just around the idea that at this point when maybe things have changed for you, it's a really great opportunity to go, well, what do I, what do I want to do? What, what, is actually, what are actually some of the things that really drive me in life and make me really happy? Because I think this is what um, the, the COVID sort of situation has given us in some ways. It's challenged our normal. And maybe our normal wasn't quite as good as we had maybe bought into or just accepted or went along with and now we've got a space where we can start to say well am I doing the things that really satisfy me am I doing something meaningful am I doing something that I come home every night and go you know my day just it really fulfilled me I feel like I'm contributing I feel like I'm of value I'm I'm a person that people want around because I I have something to offer and I think for all of us that's so critical and a lot of our jobs and the things that we do that take up a lot of our time we don't always feel that way about it so this can be a point of change where you can take some control maybe in your life and or make some decisions around (laughs) I want to do something different and I want to do it for me so that I can be a better person and uh, contribute to the world in a better way. So I work at the Petri Dish, which is a which is a great little co-working space or a big co-working space, and it kind of helps foster some of this stuff. So I've been thinking a lot about how people, you know, need change, need some ideas, need things that might trigger, spark some new directions. So yeah, have a think about what's going on for you. What are some of the sparks in your life and what makes you really happy? Because that's where that's where my brain's been going recently, especially around my work. So I'll leave you with that, and I hope that whatever happens for the rest of your day, that it sparks good things. And take care out there. So of all the things that you've seen over the lockdown period, over the last four or five months, what do you think is going to stick, and what do you hope will stick? Yeah, the... Interest, one of the real interesting things to me was over that lockdown period is how people were fundamentally willing to change the way they live, the way they work, what they do because of this kind of pandemic, which is kind of to some extent, it was you know, we're expecting it's a kind of a short term issue. But if you think about our bigger worldwide issue, you know, something like climate change how reluctant people were to change what they do, how they operate, how they drive for something that fundamentally is a bigger risk long-term to humanity than this actually pandemic as well. So for me, I I suppose that's the one I've been thinking of is actually, 
Now, how can we actually take some of those changes that we've actually made um, from, you know, a lot less carbon intensive, you know, less people driving, more people cycling, um, working, you know, working closer to your, to your, to your homes, etc. How can we actually make some of that stick? And then how can we make people realise that actually, yes, we can change the way things have done. Yes, we don't have to revert back to normal. And if we, but if we continue, if we go back to exactly where we were, then we've got just as many risks. In fact, we've got more risks long-term kind of facing us. So that's the kind of discussions that we actually want to have. So, you know, working with one of our partners, Sport Bay Plenty, going, actually, how can we encourage people to, you know, continue biking to work? How do we encourage people to, you know, actually work from home a little bit more, you know, in terms of we're not seeing any loss of productivity doing, you know, from people working from home. So what does that look like? So that's, you know, I think for us personally, in terms of that's how one of the big things that, you know, we'd like to explore and work out, you know, the opportunities associated with that as well. I think the other big one, just, just thinking about this now is, if you think about, you know, my staff, but in particular people in, all, people in Auckland, they're quite often spending two or three hours a day commuting, driving to work, getting changed, putting on their flash kind of corporate suits, etc. So imagine, you know, some of those people that are spending, you know, eight to ten hours a week um, in terms of commuting time, etc., getting ready for work. If you could actually save some of that and devote that to their own health and wellness, they're looking after the families, actually spending time giving back to the community, what a difference place it would look like. So I think, you know, for us, that's an opportunity. And in this part of this region, you know, what we've got to realise is that not everyone has that digital connectivity as well. So, you know, when we talked about making a difference, we know that some parts of our region are, you know, relatively deprived and, you know, 10% of our region doesn't actually have access to internet, etc. So this is, we know this is the way the world is actually going. And so we have to think, actually, how can we actually get that out there? How can we have that digital connectivity? Um, how can we ensure some of our elderly people in the society aren't left, getting left behind in terms of where the world's actually moving to as well? So those are things that going forward we'll be starting to explore in a, in a serious way. Let's take, well, let's take the exponents again. Let's have Victoria. Who won't hear a Victoria, what do you want from 
communication for this has been framed about doing this together for uh, the the community rather than what could have turned into an American style survivalist, you know, go into your hidey hole and lock down. Do you think we can learn from how that's been communicated in terms of a positive community response? Yeah, I think so. I think um, we're very fortunate in New Zealand that this didn't get political really in any way. Actually, most of the major political parties took a science-based kind of approach to what we're doing. Um, so I think, you know, they, you know, we're really fortunate and Jacinda Ardern is obviously a very, very strong and artful communicator. So, you know, they're saying the team of five million uh, really resonated, you know, things like actually how she talked about the Easter bunny is an essential service just meant that it kind of resonated at an individual kind of level as well. But I think, you know, we need to continue with that, which is, you know, I think we need ideally, you know, parties working, cross parties working together in terms of some core issues like housing and going, Actually, if you think about how much we've fundamentally been able to achieve because of COVID and to change the way we're doing things, actually, why can't we do something like that in the housing space, which we know is long term in a massive, you know, there's a massive crisis across New Zealand in that space. So how can we take some of what we've learned in the COVID space and apply it to other areas which are really kind of challenging, like, you know, inequality, child poverty. We've shown New Zealand can do it. We're in a very different place than a number of, you know, democracies around the world. And I think we need to just keep on leveraging on that kind of going forward as well. I think the other thing I just always note is that um, we've got to realise that actually it hasn't been too difficult for a number of people, but there's a number of people in New Zealand um, that have really struggled through this time and are going to be struggling going forward. And I think... You know, we've, we've, there's this air of positivity in New Zealand at the moment. Everything seems to be heading in the right direction. And there's positive changes and positive news coming through. But I feel like in the next six to 12 months, actually, the reality is going to hit us that actually New Zealand might be in an okay, okay place, but the, the rest of the world is in a really challenging place. And what that's going to mean for our, you know, tourism, our exports, and we're just hitting that first kind of, you know, wave of job losses, but there's going to be a second and third wave. So, Actually, I think you know we need to just work through and understand how you know how to how to actually how to help those people going forward, um, because it is going to be a massive economic cost to us. Yeah, we need to be careful not to be talking about post-COVID because we might not be out of COVID for quite a long time. No, and I think you know what we've seen happen in Australia. You know, it only takes one or two people to effectively breach those borders. Um, and really not know about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got 6 million people in Melbourne locked down and, you know, kind of pretty rampant community transmission. So you know, it appears that actually the virus is, the transmittability is getting, you know, easier and easier. So, you know, what that means long term, it's, it's really challenging, isn't it, in terms of actually, you know, where do we go through, go from here? So maybe what we need to be doing is spending time building up the, the strengths of our communities <laughs> so that when it comes back or the next thing comes back, our communities are in a stronger place. Because one of the, the almost perverse things about the the lockdown is that by stopping us being physically together, it kind of made us stronger, or at least had to be stronger, in terms of yeah. communities by means other than by physically together. Yeah. And I think one of my pet passions is that actually the communities actually have the answers to most of their own problems. In New Zealand, a lot of our funding is centralised um, with decisions made in Wellington. So how can we actually bring some of that funding and that decision making into the local community? So rather than Wellington making the decisions, actually, it's a podiki. They, you know, they know what are the best solutions for their problems down there. The solutions in a podiki are very different than the solutions in, say, a Merivale and Tauranga, etc. at the same time. So you know, I'd like to think actually how can we break down some of that central government funding and bring it back to those communities, empower the communities to make their own choices. And generally what we've seen is actually the communities, you know, they do make really good choices. They do know those challenges. You know, it's a lot easier for communities to go, yep, we're willing to pay higher taxes if we can kind of see that money coming directly back into the communities, helping their neighbours, helping, you know, fix their housing stock, et cetera, at the same time. So, you know, that's one of my personal things I'd like to see, you know, would be actually more community empowerment, more funding coming directly to communities so they can look after their own issues. Yeah, New Zealand's in a really good place. I think long term, we're going to become even more attractive destination for 
people are actually looking for a great place to live and actually do business. And I think we've got a fantastic opportunity to really capitalize on that, but we need to do it in quite a structured kind of way. You know, how how much, how open do we want our borders? How many people do we actually really want living in New Zealand without destroying our quality of life? But I think, you know, when I think about where I want to live, where my family wants to live, there's no better place than New Zealand at the moment. So I think, you know, we're very fortunate. We're down at this, you know, the bottom of the world. We've got a big kind of moat around us. Um, we can kind of operate like normal, but we can actually capitalize on some of that and some of that attractiveness to sort out some of the challenges we still have in New Zealand. You know, New Zealand is a very rich country, um, but people don't really realize sometimes actually how deprived some parts of our communities are. You know, the quality of housing um, and food that some of our children have to, you know, have to work with is, you know, frankly appalling. So how can we actually work to improve the, you know, the and lift, lift, up, lift up that tide? So maybe it's a, we've got to take the responsibility to that this reset has given us a chance to think about what our priorities are. Yeah, well, I think I think that that this reset, what it's doing is is realizing actually that the free market world where actually let's just let the market sort out all the issues probably hasn't actually worked that well. And so I think that there is going forward going to be more government inter intervention, more government support. And my challenge would be rather than just actually having that coming from central government in Wellington, actually bring that down to the community kind of level and going, actually, let's see actually how we can actually get, you know, have the community supporting themselves. So I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? From a trust perspective, I think it would be our increased focus on impact investments. So, you know, we're in a really good place. We're probably leading uh, one of the leading trusts in New Zealand at that stage. And we're trying to, like, actually share that story with other trusts uh, and family offices around New Zealand. So actually using our investments to make a difference rather than just make money, I think is, our, you know, what I'm most proud of. And I think our trustees and staff would say the same thing. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's yeah. our collection of people doing good work. So you're in our mansion. What's the superpower that's got you there? Okay. So I think I, I recall I got interviewed for a, a role once and they just said, describe your personality. And I said, look, I'll just do what an opposite of what a politician does, actually. I'll speak the truth and I'm willing to make those hard decisions. So probably if I'm ever going to be in a... a house with some fellow uh, colleagues, that's what I'll do. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? No, not at all. I just think, um, I probably think long term. Um, and um, yeah, no, I wouldn't describe my activist. It's probably, I think I've, I've got a common sense view, but I also think long term. And I think one of our challenges in New Zealand is we're very short term in terms of the nature of our kind of thinking. So, you know, I want this place to be a better place for my children and children's children, um, not just by myself. So that's what I can bring in is, you know, that, that kind of long term, what's in the best interest of the country long term. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, you know, it's exactly what I just said. You know, I've got two beautiful children. Um, I want to leave this place in a better position for them and, you know, give them the same kind of uh, background and upbringing values I've got so that they want to leave this in a better place for them as well. You know, I, I can recall when I was growing up swimming in a whole bunch of rivers around this, around this region, around New Zealand that you can't swim in now. Now, I think that for me is clearly unacceptable. So I want, you know, to that to at least be improving so for my children, and then they have the same values. So actually, when their children, children growing up, actually, you know, this country is a fantastic place to, to raise their children as well. And what challenge are you looking forward to in the next couple of years? Oh, just probably dealing with all my whereas questions on the board. Um, it's always kind of challenging. They always come from quite left field. Always quite a lot of emotion there. Um, the challenges over the next two years, what we've got actually is we have, uh, from a work perspective, we've got a community trust conference we're hosting in Rotorua in two years' time. So that's our opportunity to really kind of help lead the community trust family in terms of what we're doing from a Māori engagement perspective, from an environmental perspective, from an impact investment perspective, and really share that because, you know, the Bar Plenty isn't an island. There's no point us doing some fantastic stuff here 
um, and the rest of the country going to hell in a handbasket. So we're, and I'm really fortunate with my board, they're very open to saying, actually, we need to kind of share what we're doing, but also influence um, and help lead, you know, around the rest of the country at the same time. So that's, you know, where we're at. We're in a really good position internally, but we actually want to start pushing that a bit, those stories out a bit wider as well. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? I suppose, you know, the only advice that I would give them is um, just take the time to kind of think. I mean, where value creation comes in is thinking about things that aren't, you know, urgent but very, very important. So I think creating the space sort of once a week, once every couple of weeks to think about things that are really, really important but not urgent is where you really create value. So an example I'd give people is, you know, when you're younger, you don't really think about actually, you know, how you're going to retire, how you're going to afford to retire. Actually, that's not urgent to think about it now, but it's really, really important because if you actually don't think about it and all of a sudden you're 65 and haven't thought about it, that's some big challenge as well. So well, that's where true value creation comes in is thinking about things that you know, are really important that aren't urgent. And so focus on that and set aside some structured time once every week or two just to focus on those things in a business setting or you know, in your own personal life as well. I think it actually that's what really adds value. Thank you. Moira. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Seuss has that line, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better, it's not. And um, when I, I think of that, and I think of Alistair, and I think of the way that he runs the, uh, the manages the team at the Bay Trust, and everybody who's on that team and their commitment to our community actually really making things better. And I appreciate and value that. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been fantastic. It's a good discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and with Alistair Rhodes in Taronga. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.